Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you again, and I feel like God has brought me to this conference to be just as much helped uh, by Dr. Zempel. Hasn't that been a blessing to you? Last night was a tremendous encouragement. I definitely have been encouraged by the ministry of Dr. Zempel. I attend a church just 20 minutes down the road from his that was planted out of his ministry 10 years ago, and I'm just so grateful for the way God continues to use Dr. Zempel's ministry. Um, there in our state, Indiana, and uh, also in our lives here this week. Well, as I come to uh, this week, I am uh, finding myself a little bit out of my world. Uh, I feel like every day of my life I'm working down at the bottom of a cliff in an emergency room. And I say that actually in a very literal way, um, in the sense of counseling crisis situations. Um, every day of my life, my phone is filled with text and emails and uh, phone calls, and um, many times I'm on the road just investing, partnering with pastors around the country, uh, helping folks find hope in crisis. And uh, it is such an encouragement to be able to have a context like this week uh, to be able to come out of the emergency room and to climb to the top of the mountain and to be able to find young people there at the top that uh, have life still in front of them and uh, have the opportunity to make choices that make all the difference in the world. And uh, sometimes I feel like I would like to go into fence building business rather than always being a surgeon in the bottom of the cliff in the emergency room. But I want to be uh, also honest to say God is so good to take all of us where we are and to take us to where we need to be. We all need that hope because none of us are perfect people. And I will, can raise both of my hands to just acknowledge the fact how much I've needed help. Um, and so all of us are pilgrims walking down the same road as believers in Christ toward the same destination, the celestial city. And I like to see myself, and I hope you will see yourself just as a pilgrim along that road, reaching out your arms and being an encouragement and a help. And as Hebrews chapter 12 says, lifting up uh, the hands that hang down and the feeble knees, making straight paths for your feet, that that which is lame may be turned into the way, uh, that we may see the Lord. And so I hope that's your vision, and I know that's part of what brings you here to Baptist College of Ministry, and I just want to continue to nurture that uh, focus that is so well nurtured here in the ministry of discipleship of people. Well, you have your Bibles, and I want to just uh, start off with a psalm this morning, Psalm 24. And as we consider the subject of power with God, power with men... I want to turn the corner this morning to consider what God is looking for in bestowing His power to you and I. How do we qualify uh, for power with God and power with men? This psalm gives us so much help. I would like to read the first few verses. It says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, 
who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. I'm so encouraged to read this psalm and recognize that God is looking for men and women that can join him in the high and holy place with himself. And we qualify by being men and women of clean hands and a pure heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and dedicate our morning to him. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning. And as we consider the subject of living a life marked by power with you and power with men, I'm confident every one of us here this morning would say, I want that. That's what brings me here to Baptist College of Ministry. But Father, I pray this morning as we consider this high and noble opportunity, this possibility that's only possible in Christ, I pray that we would all be willing to pay the price that you require as we come to you seeking clean hands and a pure heart. Help us, Father, give us that fervent, zealous desire that's directed by your Holy Spirit, not by the spirit of introspection. We need you in your precious name because you care. Amen. No one understands your potential more than the enemy. I'm coming to realize that more and more, that Satan understands the incredible influence your life carries uh, with God and with men if you are a clean vessel with him. Satan knows and he fears your potential more than you do. And I think even as we do start to grasp the significance of what God wants to do in our lives, our best perspective of our potential with Jesus Power with God and power with men still pales into insignificance compared to what the enemy understands so well. Every day the enemy declares war on your soul. It's not like you and I just step into pockets of uh, attack from the enemy. Perhaps we feel that stronger at different points in our lives than others. But I'm reminded that every day I put my feet on the floor, jumping out of bed to take on another day, I'm walking into a battlefield, and the enemy has declared war on my soul before I stepped into that day. And I think it's so helpful for us to get up every day recognizing this incredible reality that we have an enemy that actually understands the potential of power with God and power with men through your life. God understands that potential too, and I'm so grateful for that, because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, and we need that reminder every day. Sometimes I think I'm surprised uh, by the enemy's attack on occasion, because I'm honestly not expecting the reality that the enemy has already declared war on my soul. You and I trusted Jesus as our personal Savior. I hope you can point back to a time where you recognize the only way you can get to heaven is by faith alone in Jesus. And that's an incredible decision. It's such an incredible decision that it actually changes your destiny, changed our destiny from, he from hell to heaven. And that's an incredible thing. And we would think that 
the enemy would somehow lose his interest in our lives because now he can no longer influence our destiny. But the exact opposite has happened because now that you and I have become friends with God, sons and daughters of God, we are more uh, enemies of the enemy, enemies of the devil than we've ever been. And while he can't control your destiny, he wants to do everything he possibly can to destroy your power. Uh, This is so well illustrated in several Old Testament lives, and I just want to consider these examples as we set the stage in this session for considering the importance of seeing myself like God sees me. Sometimes I think we can walk through life desiring the power of God and being full of faith that God wants to use me, believing the reality that God has called me, that God has called you for something big, something special, something only you can do. You know, in a real way, the calling God has ordained and customized for your life is one no one else can ever fill. And the enemy understands that incredible reality. And as we consider this, I want to take us into three lives that really capture this incredible dynamic of losing incredible power with God, power with men because of compromise. Remember there in Joshua, as God promises to Joshua and all of his men, I'm giving you all the land of Israel. It's yours, and I'm promising this to you. Every battle you step into, the victory is yours. There's no defeats as you go forward. Yes, there's battles. Yes, there's wars uh, to be won. But every single one is going to be a, a, a victory for you with my power behind you. That's an incredible thing. And we find in those opening chapters of Joshua how God comes to Joshua and uh, repeatedly reminds him to have courage, to be a man of good courage. And he reminds him of his promises. And Joshua continues to remind Israel of the importance of walking forward in obedience. Well, their biggest obstacle before them, their first uh, destination was Jericho. And God worked an incredible work that day as the men of Israel surrounded that uh, city, marched around 13 times, the Bible says. And after lifting a shout in obedience to God, the walls came crashing down without them lifting a sword to that city. It was an incredible day. It was an incredible victory. It was just what Joshua and his men needed to be able to take to the the next battle on. Well, you remember Joshua's story. The next city was the city of Ai. And as being a smaller city, they thought, we've got this one. If God did an incredible victory for us in Jericho, surely AI will not be an issue. We don't even need to send all the men. We'll just send a smaller army. And you remember that story. They walked away defeated with 36 lost lives. All because one man forfeited victory at AI because of greed for temporal values, temporal things from Jericho. 
It's interesting that as Joshua pulls his men back together, in fact, initially falls to his own face before God, trying to navigate his way forward, his response is not, well, we need a different battle plan. We need to just double our uh, army and take uh, AI another time. There's a lot of other solutions that could have run through Joshua's mind to try to solve this crisis. But Joshua did something, I think, that uh, merits our consideration. That whenever we find ourselves at a place where it seems like the power of God is missing, let's pray. Joshua did, and and God helped Joshua to recognize, you've lost power with me because one man disobeyed. It just helps us to realize how important God values obedience in our lives. Another individual is the one Dr. Zempel mentioned to us last night, Lot. He forfeited influence with his family because of vexing his own righteous soul with the things he saw and heard there in Sodom. Dr. Zempel developed this well for us yesterday, but as Lot walks uh, and scopes out the land and Abraham offers to him a choice which way to go, Lot picks Sodom. And it's interesting how much influence Sodom ended up having in Lot's life over the course of time. At first, his tent is pitched toward Sodom. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 19, we find that Lot actually is now sitting as an official in the city gates of Sodom. And as the angels of the Lord come to warn uh, Lot of coming judgment... Uh, Lot has enough sense to recognize uh, that the angels of the Lord are serious. And he takes on the responsibility to go and warn his sons-in-laws. And the Bible says that when they heard Lot speak, they thought he was just mocking. They thought he was just kidding. And they laughed him to scorn. Well, the fact is, except for... Uh, Abraham's fervent prayers for Lot. Lot himself, I have a feeling, would have been buried in the ashes, except that the angels, in mercy and response to Abraham's intercessions, grabs the arms of Lot, his wife, and two daughters, leaving the rest of Lot's family behind. And that family was unfortunately lost, half of them under the ashes of fire and brimstone from heaven. And the rest of them, Lot and his two daughters, lost morally outside of Sodom. I was reading and am reading through Genesis right now, and it's a fascinating thing to compare and contrast the lives of Noah and Lot. Both of them faced impending judgment uh, on their world. Both of them had families that they were commissioned to save. Lot lost his family because he was a man marked by compromise. And when the judgment was to fall, he had no power to convince them of the truth. 
It's interesting to me that when we look at Noah's story, remarkably, his sons join him and their wives. And all of that family is remarkably powerfully saved. Noah, a man who had power with God, power with men, and I promise you, Lot had the same opportunity. But he forfeited that influence because of his love for Sodom. Samson is another story in the Bible that just jumps off the page again of a man who had incredible power. Literally. (laughs) He was the strongest man that ever lived, the Bible calls out. And imagine having uh, those abilities matched with opportunities to lead your nation to freedom from the control of the Philistines. For Samson, he didn't need an army to win. He had the power within himself to take on any number of individuals and win a victory. It was an incredible thing. His parents had trained him uh, to be a man who would be able to walk forward with power with God and power with men. But we find some very sad verses there in Judges chapter 14 and then on into chapter 15 and 16 as Samson forfeited power with God over the Philistines because of moral compromise with strange women. It's interesting to see that sad saga. And as Dr. Zempel again pointed out to us yesterday, we find a man who at the end of his life has his eyes gouged out and his hands chained Uh, behind his back, pleading with God, Lord, would you somehow give me one more chance? And God did honor that uh, request. But it is such an unfortunate, sad conclusion to a life that had so much potential but was lost because of compromise. I just want to remind us again that no one understands and fears your potential more than the enemy. And that's why he's dedicated to luring you and I for defilement. I want to give you several lures that the enemy uses in our lives, and these are not comprehensive, but I do think it gets us thinking of the language of the enemy, the whisper of the enemy. No one will ever know. Hath God said, show me, chapter and verse, that says dot, dot, dot. It's amazing how much the language of Genesis 3 gets whispered into our own ears. And it gets whispered into the ears of the best of us believers. Sometimes it's amazing that the more educated we become in this book, the enemy uses this book as his greatest tool to somehow convince us toward compromise by distorting its truth. There's a sense where no one knows the Bible better than the enemy does outside of God himself. And in the temptation with the Lord Jesus, it's fascinating to me that the enemy used the word, always using it a way to put question marks all over it, using the word in all kinds of ways to cause us to doubt its integrity or to somehow become so legalistic as we approach its pages that if it's not said exactly in black and white, It has no application to me. Just this once, and I'll be satisfied. My choices won't affect anyone else. 
I have freedom in Christ. I can do anything I want. One time won't hurt anything. This ministry situation is actually an exception. I mentioned yesterday that I do work with a lot of individuals uh, who in some measure are uh, part of ministry. Pastor, missionary, deacons, men who carry ministry roles. And I'm often amazed how much as I walk through their story, how the enemy lured them to defilement by justifications around ministry, quote, exceptions. People will think I'm crazy if I take a stand. I deserve to have some pleasure. I've waited on God and it has not worked out for me. I need to be culturally relevant to reach the culture. And I realize there's an aspect to that statement that is true. But often the enemy whispers that line to us in a way that leads us down a road of personal compromise, corporate compromise. You've already blown it before. It's no use standing now. And there are so many other whispers of the enemy. I just want to remind us that the enemy understands your potential for power with God and power with men more than we do. And as we recognize the voice of the enemy, it helps us to understand our need to take a stand for Jesus. I've just been amazed in my own life how much uh, we can come on the other side of defeat and recognize the voice of the enemy after it was too late. Now, better late than never, but God help us all to have such a sensitivity to the Spirit of God that we can recognize the whisper of the enemy before we bite his bait. Whose fault is it that we have no power with God? It says in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Those are incredible words, and I've often used that verse or those verses to help lost people recognize their need for a Savior. Those are tremendous verses for gospel use. But as we consider the context of these verses, Isaiah is writing to, if we could call it in the New Testament age, believers. Those who would have gone to temple to worship. Yes, their lives full of hypocrisy and um, other uh, defilement in their lives, but religious people as well. And it just reminds me just how applicable this uh, statement is, these verses are to our lives. Whose fault is it? Isaiah reminds us it's never God's. But we all ought to look in the mirror and consider the possibility, maybe I'm not clean. James says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, you know not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend, a friend, a friend of the world, 
is the enemy of God. Again, James writing to believers as he's constantly challenging them on things that have everything to do with power with God and power with men. And he challenges them on this subject of the possibility that you and I can be believers. Yes, our destiny remains unchanged. But our influence for God and our influence in the lives of others is severely suppressed because of being an adulterer or adulteress. Isaiah was not one to just point his finger at everyone else. We find in Isaiah 6, he recognizes after calling out woes on so many others, he says, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Notice, for mine eyes have seen the king. And I just want to encourage us this morning that as we step forward with vision for what God wants to do for your life, that God wants to make you the vessel that he can use. God is not looking for perfect vessels. Otherwise, none of us would qualify. But he is looking for cleansed vessels. He's looking for honest vessels. And I'm so grateful for that hope. That's why the psalmist said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now I'm going to quickly walk through several slides here that I realize certainly demand a lot more treatment. And I realize also I'm in a context that's being, um, where you are being nurtured in many of these truths, so many of these are not going to be new, but for time's sake, I want to consider what are the elements of defilement. Now, the fact is, every time you and I sin against the Spirit of God, every time you and I grieve the Spirit of God, we suppress His power in our lives. But I do want to call out three big areas, three big categories that do uh, suppress his power in our lives. We're defiled by anger. You know, there's a lot of reasons why we can struggle with anger. Often there can be deep insecurity and inferiority, fears and anxieties, unfulfilled expectations, injustice, and unresolved guilt, just to name a few. And as those well up inside of us, as those stand unresolved in our lives, sometimes we ourselves are that volcano, so to speak, that explodes on the lives of those around us. And that explosion can look like a lot of different things. Yes, yelling and control, manipulation and retaliation, self-pity, sarcasm. But something that screams the loudest is actually silence. Ever met an angry person that didn't speak a word, but you could feel it. It shaped the atmosphere. Sometimes we have been the cause of um, defiling others through that kind of reaction. Sometimes we have been on the outside of someone else's explosion and experienced a defilement from them. Anger is an incredibly defiling thing. But also, suppressed anger can be just as defiling. It's that tea kettle anger. <laughs> suppressed inside, but in the process of time, does manifest itself out. Sometimes we can feel ourselves so virtuous because we aren't the explosive type. 
I certainly had that belief for a long time and came to realize that I also had an issue with anger because when issues would not go my way and I would feel so virtuous and being able to express that, it was only a matter of time before I would end up expressing that and surprising myself, surprising others. The fact is anger defiles others. James chapter 1, verse 20, For the wrath of man never works the righteousness of God. We're also defiled by bitterness. And uh, Hebrews chapter 12 calls this out, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many, many, many be defiled. Well, if anger is an outward explosion or the inward suppression of unresolved conflicts in our soul... Bitterness has everything to do with the way we emotionally process that resentment. Sometimes you can see anger on the outside. Bitterness often has a long, festering uh, influence in shaping the trajectory of our lives. Shapes our words and shapes our approach to life and At first, it starts out like a small little seed, but over the process of time, it changes the person we become. It doesn't just affect us, because here in Hebrews chapter 12, it explains this incredible rippling effect that it has in the process of our lives as long as it stands unresolved. Not only are we defiled by it, others are defiled by it. And bitterness is often caused because there is woundedness somewhere in our lives. Verbal wounds, emotional wounds, sexual wounds, spiritual wounds. Wounds can come at us from a lot of different directions and look like a lot of different things. If it hurts, it's a wound. And as we think about wounds, I just want to consider uh, the fact that uh, wounds are always a decision point in our lives. It's the decision point that determines the trajectory of our lives. Just because we're wounded doesn't make us bitter people. I want to suggest, and we'll talk about this this, uh, tomorrow, how much pain is one of God's best gifts in your life. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that God is uh, all about injustice or that God condones or justifies injustice. But it is amazing that God is bigger than any injustice in our lives. He's bigger than any wrongdoing from someone else in our lives. And in his redemptive power is able to take that and make that golden in your life. To make it more precious than gold. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But I just like the way Hebrews develops this where the wound in our lives is a decision point that can take us one of two directions. We can either take the route of resentment, leading us on into rebellion. Esau's story is given for us there, and on into a life of, in its most extreme sense, reprobation, unprincipled lifestyle. A lot of wounded people have taken that course because of bitterness. But that same pain and that same wound also presents another incredible opportunity to embrace grace. It's super abundant, a divine power to overcome evil, a new identity defined by the Spirit of God, not defined by someone else's offense toward me. 
And then an incredible power with God and with men to win those that hurt me with prayer, love, blessing, and sacrificial service. It's an incredible opportunity in all of our lives. The enemy understands how important this is. Jesus says we live in a world full of offenses. And the enemy understands just how significant this is in setting the trajectory of our lives. Finally, we can be defiled by impurity. Again, I said up front, there are so many issues we could put up on the screen here this morning. But I want to call out three big ones that I run into all the time and have seen to be three big ones in my personal life. And as we consider uh, defilement by impurity, I like the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. We're defiled in many different ways. We're defiled spiritually, we're defiled physically. We're defiled morally by sin. We're defiled sexually. We're defiled mentally. We're defiled emotionally. We're defiled relationally. And Isaiah recognized this. Isaiah 6 has been a passage I've always loved because of Isaiah's courage to say, Here am I, Lord, send me. Oh, yes. He recognized, Woe is me, I'm a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've read that passage so many times and thought, Lord, thank you that my problem is not my tongue. Well, as we allow the Spirit of God to search us, maybe our tongue actually has more relevance than we would consider. But I've come to realize that while God, the Spirit of God, put his finger on Isaiah's tongue, are there other members of our body that have been defiled by the enemy, defiled eyes, defiled lips, defiled hands, defiled ears, defiled mind, defiled heart. The Bible speaks to all of these. It's a fascinating study through the Word. We're going to uh, look at uh, just how this works out in our lives, and I want to consider this just for some thoughts and we will wrap up this session and look to how do we move forward to discovering his cleansing. Defiled lips can look like a number of things. I'm going to give you several. I'm not going to read through all of these. But our lips can be defiled by words of disrespect, words of ingratitude, lying and deception, flattering words. Our eyes can be defiled by loftiness. Our eyes can be defiled by despising looks, unguardedness, adultery. Our hands can be defiled by theft, by laziness, sexual violations, expressions of violence and anger. Ears can be defiled, wrong music, gossip, murmuring conversations, Sports and news media can be a defiling element in our lives. Our minds can be defiled. 
And as I consider these things in my own life, one thing I've come to realize is as God works in our lives to make us clean vessels for Him, you and I can be sometimes like a farmer that is working out in a field that is a mile wide. And to paint the picture a little bit, imagine that the the farmhouse and the barn all sit on one corner of that mile-wide field. And in preparation for planting season, the farmer makes his way out about a quarter of a mile out into that field, picking up stones and trash or whatever is blown into the field, wants to make sure that field is ready for planting. And in the course of a long day, the sun actually has now set on him. And the only light he can see is the light all the way back at the barn. Yes, it's a quarter of a mile away. It's pretty dark. Sun is going down. It's dusk for sure at this point as he starts to make his way. His hands are filthy, dirty. He can see it for the light he does have. A quarter of a mile from the light. Rubs his hands against his jeans and makes his hands as clean as they can be. Makes his way halfway toward the barn and now he's closer to the light. Takes another look at his hands and realizes, wow, they're not as clean as I thought they were. Gives him another shakedown, and next thing you know, he's standing under the light. He's standing right under the light there at the barn, and he's recognizing, wow, do I need a bar of soap. It's interesting how you and I walk forward with the Lord Jesus, how much he continues to resensitize us so that we can be men and women who walk with power, power with God. And power with man. Sometimes initially on the journey, the Spirit of God is calling out big things in your life that you have suppressed or accepted or justified, and God just cleanses your soul. But as you continue to step forward with Him, it's as if we're getting closer to the light and God shows us finer things, trivial things as we may think of them that have everything to do with power with God and power with man. We're going to take the next session to talk about how do we then go from this place to being able to qualify as a man or woman with clean hands and a pure heart. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning. And as we go forward, I just see incredible potential in this room. Father, we have as many as in this room as sat there in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 in a prayer meeting. And a few chapters later, it was those men and women that were accused of turning the world upside down. Father, that potential sits under this roof here this morning. And Father, I pray this morning that we would understand and catch a glimpse of what the end the enemy understands and fears so much more. Father, all of us can point to how you have brought us to a place of greater honesty, transparency, and purity with you than another point in our Christian walk. But Father, as we stand before you this morning, we don't want to forfeit all that you want to do because of small things, small defilements, that we've justified or excused. And Father, I pray that you would give us the sensitivity to the Spirit of God because, Lord, you're the one that wants to put your hand on every life.
to change this world. We love you because you care. Amen.